or the uh, rather the questions. So what are the names of the protective layers of the brain known as the meninges? If you remembered the acronym we gave you, the meninges pad the brain. The P is pia mater, A arachnoid, D dura mater. Okay, so those would be the, that would be the correct answer. The rest of the uh, choices, dura mater, pia mater, and alma mater, mm, no. Skull, that's not part of the meninges, dura and pia. Um, so dura, arachnoid, and cerebella, no. So dura, arachnoid, and pia. You have your eye, it's divided up into the posterior and anterior chambers. We wanted to know what filled the posterior chamber of the eye. We said water, mm, no. Aqueous humor, that's the anterior chamber. Blood, hopefully not. Air, no. Vitreous humor, vitreous humor fills the posterior chamber of the, of the eye. When you're talking about manual stabilization of the cervical spine, while immobilizing a patient, when can you release manual stabilization? And the choices were when the patient feels relief. Well, the patient may never feel relief. Once the cervical collar is applied, well, the problem is the patient can still move their head. Once the patient's been positioned on a backboard, well, no. Once the torso is secured, getting closer, and the correct answer is once the torso and head are secured, once mobilization is completely done. Which statement concerning head injury is true? This is one of those multiple multiples. Epidural hematomas are most commonly associated with blows to the temporal skull. That's true. Subdural hematomas can take a long time to develop. We mentioned that they could be acute from uh, the incident to 12 hours, subacute, 12 hours to 24 hours, or chronic, 24 to 72 hours. So that's true. Alcohol can mask the presentation of a head injury. Definitely true. Irregular breathing patterns indicate serious head injury. That's one of the components of Cushing's triad. So yes, that is true. So the true answer is E, all of them, don't hate me. What is a hyphema? Choices were bruising around the orbit. No, that's ecchymosis. Unequal pupils. No, that's anisocoria. Blood from the nose. Epistaxis, blood in the anterior chamber of the eye. Bing, 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 bing. And the fifth choice was just a silly answer, a punctuation mark. So blood in the anterior chamber of the eye is hyphema. Okay. Then we had a scenario question, softball team's pitcher, Molly was hit in the head with a bat. Upon your arrival, Molly is unresponsive with a two inch laceration to her forehead and snoring respirations. What's the first thing you do on scene? So of the choices, 
open the airway using a jaw thrust, open the airway using a head tilt, sterile dressing to the head wound, pupils, or vital signs. The best answer is jaw thrust. It's a head injury and it's a jaw thrust. You have a beautiful family, Ms. Lima. Most sensitive indicator of head injury. Choices were pupil size and inequality. Vital signs, mechanism, ability to move or mental status. The best answer is mental status. Mental status is the most sensitive indicator of a head injury. Molly's baseline vital signs were 130 over 80, 84 and 18, very respectable. Her second set of vital signs while en route to the hospital were 158 over 88, 64 and 10. What do you suspect is Molly's problem? So the thing you needed to look at here was the trending. And the trending is the blood pressure is going up along with a widening pulse pressure. The heart rate is trending downward and the breathing is changing. And that would be Cushing's triad. So the best answer here is increased intracranial pressure. None of those signs coincides with shock. Shock, in fact, classic shock, presents just the opposite, hypotensive, tachycardic, and tachypnic. And since blood loss is the way we classically think of shock, that would be wrong as well. And the other choice was epinephrine release as a compensatory mechanism. Epinephrine might make your blood pressure go up, but it would make your heart rate go up as well. So that's what you needed to know there. So the best answer is increased intracranial pressure. Visceral peritoneum, what is it? Well, you needed to remember that visceral means covering organs and peritoneum is abdominal organs. So it's the membrane covering the abdominal organs. The other choices, membrane lining the abdominal cavity, that would be the parietal peritoneum. Membrane lining the thoracic wall, that'd be the parietal pleura. Membrane covering the lung, that would be the visceral pleura. And membrane covering the brain, that would be the pia mater. So membrane covering the abdominal organs. You have a patient extricated from a building collapse, JVD, cyanosis of the neck and shoulders. What would you call this condition? While one of the choices, unfortunate, certainly would apply, that's not the best answer. The best answer is traumatic asphyxia. The other choices were tamponade. Tamponade is when blood fills the pericardial sac. It does present with JVD, but not with the cyanosis of the upper body. Congestive heart failure does present with JVD, but not with cyanosis of the upper body. And tension pneumothorax does present with JVD, but not with cyanosis of the upper body. So traumatic asphyxia. Questions so far? Okay. The best treatment for clear fluid found in the ears and nose of a trauma patient is to cover the openings with loose dressing to prevent contamination.
The other choice is pack and pack and pack. No. If they have a skull fracture, I don't think we want to suction the nose. We don't want to suck the brain right out of them. So just cover the openings with loose dressings to prevent contamination. Which of the following indicates cervical spine injury? One of the choices is priapism. Hopefully you remember that that's one of the signs of neurogenic shock. Diaphragmatic breathing. Hopefully you remember that that indicates um, that the patient has an injury below C5. Respiratory arrest. If you remember the phrenic nerves exit C3 to 5, keep you alive, then you would know that that injury is above C3. And that would indicate that the patient has a high cervical spine injury. And the last one is hypertension. Because of the vasodilation, this patient would be hypotensive. So the correct answer is respiratory arrest, priapism, diaphragmatic breathing, and that would be choice two or B. Then we gave you another scenario question. Your patient, Carl, states an argument he had with his friend in the bar got out of hand. His friend threw Carl to the floor and pummeled him during the ensuing fight. When you arrive, Carl is ambulatory. He's got a bruised and swollen eye, admits to having had a couple of ears. He's complaining of left upper quadrant pain with left shoulder pain after the assault. So the first question is, when you put that, that stuff together, what do you suspect is the problem? And the key here is we're talking about abdominal injury and it said left upper quadrant pain along with shoulder pain, left shoulder pain, and that would indicate splenic injury. Gallbladder injury and liver injury, those being on the right side, would, it would be uh, present with right abdominal pain, upper quadrant pain, and right shoulder pain. The kidney is located retroperitoneal, and you wouldn't get pain in the shoulders with that at all. So it's in the wrong place with the wrong signs. Carl's abdomen is tender and rigid upon palpation. What does this indicate? So the options were pleuritic pain. No, pleuritic pain is when you take a deep breath and your chest hurts more. Six-pack abs, that's what I have right across here. Rebound tenderness, that's when you compress the belly and then it hurts more when you let go. Colicky pain, that's the wave-like pain that you experience um, due to the, the obstruction of a hollow organ. Or peritoneal pain. And we know that peritoneal pain indicates a surgical belly. It indicates blood or um, leakage into the abdominal cavity. That's going to make it rigid upon palpation. Correct answer is peritoneal pain. So this guy got thrown to the ground, pummeled, he's been drinking. How should you transport this patient? Well, he has the mechanism, plus he's unreliable. He's been drinking and he has facial trauma. So he needs to have spinal motion restriction. So the best answer is spinal motion restriction on the squad bench. I mean, on the stretcher. The choices, 
were position of comfort, no. Lateral recumbent, well, if he's going to throw up, you may end up that way, but no. Seated on the squad bench, no. Fowlers, no. We want a collar on the bed, no higher than 30, 30 degrees. Your patient is unconscious after a witness dive into the shallow end of the gene pool. What do we call this mechanism? So if you remember those mechanisms that we discussed, compression from the head down is called axial loading. You're adding a load to your axis. So that's the type of injury. The other choice is distraction. Distraction is from a hanging, okay? Hyperextension, unusual in this sort of mechanism. If anything, it would be hyperflexion. Hyperrotation, that's when you spin in one way or the other. Or lateral movement. And that generally doesn't, you, doesn't occur when you have this mechanism. So axial loading is the example. And then we talked about another scenario to finish out the quiz. Your patient, Ron, is the victim of an assault. Ron states he was kicked in the chest and is now having difficulty breathing. After a masterful, quick, and efficient assessment, you find a part of Ron's right thorax is moving inward as he inhales, outward as he exhales. His vital signs are a blood pressure of 132 over 80. Um, 128. Otherwise, his assessment is unremarkable. So this movement of his chest, inward when he inhales, outward when he exhales, what do we call that? The options were normal, a sucking chest wound, agonal movement, apnea, or paradoxical movement. And the best answer is paradoxical movement. It's not normal. When you breathe in, your entire chest should rise. And when you exhale, the entire chest should fall. Sucking chest wound refers to penetrating trauma. Agonal means that he's not moving enough air. Well, he's talking to you, so he's moving adequate air. And apnea means he's not moving air at all. He's talking to you. He's not apneic. Best treatment for this situation, how do we treat a flail segment? Some of the choices, do nothing, he's fine. Apply a moist, sterile dressing with aluminum foil. Well, that's more for an evisceration than it is for a chest wound. A moist, sterile dressing, not really necessary. An occlusive dressing. Now, occlusive dressings are for holes in the chest. Stabilize the right chest. That's the correct answer. We want to stabilize the right chest. What is the appropriate O2 therapy for Ron? Well, he's been kicked in the chest. He's to Kipnik at 28. He's telling you he's short of breath. So we want to give him as much O2 as possible. So 12 liters non-rebreather. The other choices were a nasal cannula at six. Mm, not enough. A nasal cannula at 12. Mm, too much. Non-rebreather mask at six. Mm, not enough. It is the 12 liters per minute via non-rebreather. That's just right. 
Because you are EMT slick, you reassess Ron on the way to the hospital. You discover Ron is having more difficulty breathing. His breath sounds are diminished on the right. His neck veins are distended, though his trach is still midline. 100 over 60, 128 and 32 are his vital signs. What do you think is his problem? So the trick here is you needed to take a look at the trending of the vital signs. So he's got that narrowing pulse pressure. He also is more tachycardic and tachypnic, and he has JVD. A little bit of a curveball there. I told you his trach was still midline, but the best answer here is still a tension pneumothorax. We had mentioned that tracheal shift is very difficult to see and very often you don't see it in these, in these cases, but the rest of the presentation, the diminished breath sounds with the JVD screams tension pneumothorax. Hemothorax, you wouldn't have full neck veins because you wouldn't have enough blood in the system. A simple pneumothorax does not give you JVD. Head injury, we're not even close. And pericardial tamponade will give you the narrowing pulse pressure, the JVD, but his breath sounds would be present and equal because tamponade does not affect the lung. It's a heart thing. So that's our multiple guest portion. Any questions? Okay. Extra credit, I ask you to list the nine or the eight types of shock that we discussed in class and then describe or give an example of each. If you remembered the acronym RN-CHAMPS, that would get you there at least part of the way. R is for respiratory, an example would be asthma or the description, poor gas exchange. N, neurogenic, an example would be spinal cord trauma a description, distributive shock or high space shock or relative hypovolemia. C, cardiogenic shock, an example, heart attack uh, or a, a tension pneumothorax. Uh, a, a description, it's mechanical shock or obstructive shock. H, hypovolemic shock, blood loss, volume loss, basically hypovolemic shock. A, anaphylaxis, a systemic allergic reaction to an allergen. M, metabolic shock, a derangement of metabolism that causes poor perfusion like hypoglycemia, diabetic ketoacidosis, hypoxia, we'll take that. Uh, P, psychogenic, ha uh, psych uh, has a psychological component, a stress reaction, and S, septic, a um, significant infectious process that causes vasodilation and leaky blood vessels. What are the functions of the skeletal system? So we can do form, protection, movement, red blood cell production, reservoir for calcium and phosphorus. And then, hold on one second, let me check on something.
disregard those extra credit questions. That was from the last one. This is from this one. List Beck's triad. Beck's triad is narrowing pulse pressure, JVD, muffled heart sounds, and that indicates cardiac tamponade. List three types of joints and give examples of each. A ball and socket joint, and an example would be shoulders or your um, hips. Hinged joint, that would be elbow, knee, finger. Pivot joint, that might be your skull and C1, your vertebra. Also um, gliding joints, the small bones of the hands or feet. Saddle joint, your ankle, for instance. Fused, skull, symphysis, your pubis, condyloid, your hand. So those would be examples and uh, types and examples. Five things. Yeah, thank you. I, I kind of figured that out of that. I thought it sounded familiar. Um, five things that increase a patient's susceptibility to hypothermia. Age. Here you could double dip because there are two different things. The very old who can't regulate the body temperature um, and the very young. Ambient temperature, is it cold outside? Wind chill is a big one. Moisture, if you're wet, that will cause you to lose heat five times faster. Things like alcohol. There are some drugs and poisons that will make you more susceptible. Shock, burns, spinal cord injury, um, hypoglycemia, poor vasculature, being a lean, mean, muscular machine, um, hypothyroidism. So there was a number of things that you could draw upon, right? Um, uh, being a, uh, um, a class at risk, a, a, a group at risk like homeless. So all of that could be, um, could be declared. Thumb is more of a, um, it's more of a modified hinge joint because it's more of an opposable thumb. Okay, it's not a saddle joint. And Captain, just to be clear, because we saw this consistently throughout the um, thing, uh, low blood pressure and cool small signs are not accepted for the Bex triad. The Bex triad were just the three things he mentioned. Yep. Narrowing pulse pressure, uh, the JVD and the muffled heart sounds. So if you gave other answers, or you gave even those three things, but forgot to put down that it's tamponade, then cardiac tamponade, then you missed a point that way, okay? So there were a couple things that were, people were throwing a lot of stuff up there, hoping it sticks, it doesn't stick. You had to say those three things. So questions about quiz 10. Cool. So I see people are still filtering in. So we've got some stuff that we have to do talk about as far as housekeeping goes. And we'll address those issues as soon as we get more of a quorum. In the meantime, I'm going to start. Uh, uh, hold on, Captain. We have one question going back to the quiz. Miss Lima, what about the burn patient? He went through all those at the end. I said burn. Yeah. Was there, was there another question in regards to that?
Just put my screen together. Yep, and I see that you're up at hazardous materials management with the suits. Yes, I think that was the last thing we covered. There we go. Mr. Brown, nice do. Thanks, Captain. We kind of went minimalist here and God knows what there. Very nice. Looks, looks good. Looks good. I like it. It's artistic. Yeah, I don't think I could pull one of those things off, though. I think everything goes in COVID. Yep. Fair point. Yeah, might as well. Why not, right? Yeah, Captain, what could you lose? I mean, except your pride and your dignity. <laughs> I know, really. I know. What's to lose is right. Yeah, it's nothing like the, uh, the, the, the enmity of my colleagues looking at me like, what the hell did you do? We're the worst. If, if you don't currently like your job because you don't get along with the people in your workplace, don't come to EMS. <laughs> because... We eat our young. We eat our young. That's our motto. That's a bumper sticker. We eat our young. See, Captain, we're at the coffee shop tonight. We're having coffee. I see that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Is yours okay? Delightful. Thank you very much. So I'm looking at the cup and it has writing. And at the angle I, I see it, the only thing I can see is CK space me up okay so i'm thinking that's kind of obscene and it's pick me up ah so it kind of shows you where our week is gone don't you don't you think you want to know about your background captain what's my background well Tonight's discussion is going to be, after we're finished with hazardous materials, multiple casualty incidents. So that is a picture of a drill, an aerial shot of a drill. Um, that would be the treatment area. So we will be talking about multiple casualty incidents. We get about 42, Captain. We should be at the 40, lost two more. So it should be about should be what, 46? We should be at 48 plus us should be 50. Right. So we're, we're, we're about six shy so far. I don't know if you wanna start in on that lecture and then before the first break, we'll talk about the, the housekeeping stuff that gives them a little time or you wanna just repeat yourself redundantly throughout well, there's always that. Well, the first thing we'll do is we'll just remind people that we have quiz 11 coming up on Thursday. And that will be on obstetrics, pediatrics, and geriatrics. So the special populations. Okay. So Barry, that's what we're going to be doing on quiz 11. Okay. Just wanted you guys to be aware of that. And we'll of course say that again. 
about midway through, and then we'll be asked yet again, and we'll say it at the end of the class, and then we'll answer the emails asking us what's on the quiz. So, such is my lot in life. Yes, repetition is the basis of comedy. I thought repetition was the sincerest form of flattery. No, that's something else entirely. And yes, happy EMS week, everybody. Woohoo! It is the most sacred week of the hall of the calendar. Wait, before before you really just, just drive him insane, are you really gonna ask the chapters? Because we can do that thing again where we say, there's this thing in the front of your book called a table of contents. And you can look at the table of contents and the table of contents right there will tell you pediatrics. And actually, this one actually says special populations, which is amazing, amazing. I, 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 I fear, I fear for the future. I'm telling you, I'm tell Velcro. Velcro destroyed Western civilization. Yes, let's take it as a do-it-yourself project. Generations, tell you the chapters. generations of children can't tie their shoes because of Velcro. Um, That's where it all started. By golly, I remember when we did chemistry and math problems using a slide rule, and my niece is bitching about her handheld pocket calculator. Captain, I oh, thought Mr. Lou, that was sarcasm. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I thought you used the abacus, Captain. Oh, wow. Ouch. Ouch. Because I oh. used the slide ruler, so you used the yeah. abacus. I wasn't quite that old. <laughs> um, all right. Are we ready to... Uh... You want me to get started and just do finish off the hazardous materials and by that time we'll see what we have for a quorum? Well, we're like I said, we're at 44 right now. And then I I assume you don't want to go over it again. All right, so let me get I'll get started on our we'll finish up hazardous materials. Um that'll take us probably to 7:30 and whoever's not here by 7:30 um well, you can fill in the blank. Sound good? All right, so before we get started, uh, the last thing we talked about was um, what to wear at a formal hazmat. And we talked about level A, level B, level C, and level D. Does anyone have any questions about all of the material that we talked about so far regarding hazardous materials? Level D pretty much is no respiratory protection. Um, and basically, if you were a firefighter, it would be a turnout coat. As an EMT, it would be a bunker gear. So that's what that would be. There's no respiratory protection, and it's just basically um, heavy duty uh, work protection. Okay. Other questions? Nope. Okay. So we've decided what, we've identified the product, we've decided what to wear, then the question becomes, what do we do about it? I don't think we talked about decon, did we? I think that's kind of, that's kind of where we, we left off. 
So now when we're managing the scene, we've established our hot zone, our cool, our warm zone, and our cold zone. You have to manage access. You don't want people strolling into your hazmat and becoming patients and becoming contaminated. And even more importantly, you don't want pay people strolling out contaminating you and all of your people. So once we establish a perimeter, we're going to establish a, an access corridor. There's only going to be one way in and one way out, and it's going to be managed um, that way and contained that way. The hot zone we said was where the active spill is. The hot zone is bad. This is where danger lurks. This is where you go in there and your face melts off. So we're not going to go in there. The only people who should be going into the hot zone are the specially trained hazmat technicians that form the entry team. The entry team will don their protective gear whatever protective gear they've selected. They'll access the hot zone through the entry corridor, and then they will do what they need to do for that, for that scene. It may start off with some um, monitoring. It may start off with sampling. It may render emergency care to someone who's injured. They may be mitigating the event by plugging holes or creating dams to prevent the spread. So they're going to be going in and actively working in the hot zone. In addition to that entry team, we talked about there being a backup team. The backup team will be waiting in the cold zone, partially suited up in the event that something happens to the entry team, okay? But the only team that's gonna go in at the outset is the entry team and then the backup team if needed. You certainly might have more than one entry team depending upon the incident. And you should always have as many backup teams as you have entry teams. In the warm zone, this is actually the decontamination zone or the contamination reduction zone. When the entry team decides to exit the scene, they're going to leave through the decon corridor. They're gonna come through decon. And the decontamination team is going to wash them off, soap them up with brushes. They're going to tap them and have them do a 90 degree turn and soap them up some more. And another 90 degree turn and soap them up some more. And then a final 90 degree turn so that all four aspects of their body get soaked up at least once, possibly even twice. So now they're all soaked up, then they will be rinsed, and then they will likely step into a second station where they will repeat that whole process. Before they enter, enter into the decon corridor, they're going to drop all of their tools. So if they have any equipment, any monitors, a tool belt, all of that is going to get dropped. In addition, they will likely um, end up removing their SCBAs as well if it's on the outside of the suit, if, it's, if they're in level B. If they're in level A, the SCBAs are going to be inside the suit and will not be contaminated. 
but there'll be a tool drop where you drop all your external tools so that that can be deconned or tossed. In addition to the rescuers, the entry team and the other rescuers that went into this hot zone being decontaminated, any patients that they discover that they're extricating will also go through a decon. If the patient is ambulatory, they'll go through the same decon line. Or there might be a mass decon, a decon tent set up for patients to walk through and be, and be cleaned. If the patient's unresponsive, then they'll be brought through a special part of the decon section where they can be scrubbed while they're on a longboard. They'll be removed from a contaminated longboard and put on a clean longboard for transport. No one should come to you without being deconned, okay? When we talk about decon, there are a number of different techniques. We know just from our previous discussions of toxicology that if you get rid of the contaminated clothes, you can get rid of about 80% of, of the contamination. So for any patient who's coming through the decon line, we're gonna have them strip and then they'll be deconned. When you're talking about the rescuers, we're going to decon them first, and then we'll be taking off their PPE. We talked about solid product. If something is a powder, we'll dust it off first, um, disrobe, dust, and then we will dilute. There are a couple of other techniques that are used for decontamination. Neutralizing or neutralization um, is a technique that requires you know what the product is. If I know the product is an acid, then perhaps I can neutralize it with something that's slightly alkaline. If I know something is a very strong alkaline, then perhaps I can neutralize it with a weak, with a weak acid. But many products are not identified. We only know the class that they are. So in that case, Neutralizing may not be a choice. In addition, when you mix two chemicals together, you create a chemical reaction, and that usually creates heat, and that could create a problem. Absorption is another way of managing a hazmat, and it's actually a way that probably many of you are familiar. For instance, if you have ever spilled let's say oil on your garage floor, then you may be familiar with Speedy Dry. Speedy Dry is a, um, a solid that absorbs material that you can then sweep up and get rid of. Another example of absorption is used at possibly one of the most hellacious types of hazardous materials events, and that is a litter box. So kitty litter basically absorbs the hazmat, the urine, the poop, and now you can dispose of it. So there's another example of absorption being used for decon. When you're talking about the decontamination zone, the decon team needs to be wearing PPE as well. And usually when you're talking about the decon team, they will wear nothing less than one level below 
what the entry team is wearing. What the heck did he just say? If the entry team went in wearing level A, the decon team will wear level A or level B. If the entry team went in wearing level B, the decon team will wear level B or level C. If the decon team, if the entry team went in level A, you will not see the decon team wearing level C. So they always are either at the same level or one level lower, okay? Questions about warm zone operations and decon. Another type of decon that with which we are, we frequently use is called mass decon. And that really is when you have a large number of people who might've been exposed. You set up this huge tent and people walk through the tent, they shed their clothes, get showered, get scrubbed, get showered. And then as they exit, they put on dry disposable gowns or dry disposable scrubs or, or stuff of that nature, okay? In addition to decon in the warm zone, we said we have the cold zone. The cold zone is where it's safe. There should be no threats there. This is where treatment of any patients will occur. And this is where rehab, I said no, 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 will occur as well. Rehabilitation is um, when you have the entry team get evaluated. And then if they need support like an IV or O2 or just rest because it gets very hot, very stressful in those suits, then that's where they get rehabbed. It's a place for them to rest, to get, re um, to get rehabilitated with fluids, possibly maybe a little, thank you very much, a little something to, um, to eat perhaps. So that's what the cold zone's for. The cold zone is where we should be, okay? We should not be in the warm zone. We should not be in the hot zone. That's not an EMS function. That would be a hazmat team function, a firefighter function, okay? That does not mean we don't wanna understand what's going on, but that's just the, the nature of the beast. Questions about hazardous materials, the decon corridor and how that works. And as you look at this picture, you'll notice they have cute little kiddie pools. That's not that far from the truth. Really what you have are a series of pools or bins, something like kiddie pools or just um, uh, square pools. And each pool is a station and patient and individuals get washed, soaked and washed, and they move to a second station, maybe even a third station. And then when they're done, they shed their PPE. The decon team, being in such close proximity to the hazmat team, is, to the entry team, needs to be deconned as well. And the way that usually works, the folks that are in the first wash station have the greatest risk. So they will step into the pool, they will soak themselves, they will scrub themselves, then they'll move into the next bin where their colleagues will do the same, and then they'll finish up, and then their colleagues will wash themselves and finish up, okay? That means you have all of this liquid with all that nasty product. And the question 
occurs, what do we do with all of this? So all of this needs to be packaged and disposed of appropriately. And usually some sort of agency like Clean Harbors will have the contract for this and they will come and they will manage the rest of this. So questions about that? Cool. Some other considerations involving hazardous materials, for instance, logistics, or just how things are going to play out, how you manage stuff. Topography, which is literally the lay of the land. Is it flat? Is it hilly? Are you downhill? Are you uphill? All of that plays a role in how you're going to manage this, right? So for instance, if you're talking about um, a hazardous materials spill on a roadway, then based on the topography, based on traffic, you may want to seal off traffic in both directions. You may want to seal off all of the sewers. When you're talking about hazardous materials, the sewer system is not your friend. The sewer system is your enemy because those hazardous materials will drain into the sewer system and then spread throughout the city. There's always an incident every year here in the city of Boston where something gets into the sewer system and now sewer covers are getting blown off in the city streets. And that's a matter of a hazmat, okay? Um, is the topography hilly? So do you want, is everything going to flow downhill? Is it going to, um, is it pro, is product um, gaseous? Is it going to rise? Is it going to settle in low-lying areas? So all of that is important. Another important logistics decision is regarding civilians. Based on the product, what are you going to do with the people in the neighborhood? Do you shelter them in place? Do you tell them? Stay in your homes, close your windows, shut off your air conditioners. Or do you evacuate the neighborhood? So now you have to think about what are the pros and the cons? What's the risk benefit? When would sheltering in place make sense? For instance, if you have a chemical that's um, a respiratory irritant, let's say you have a chlorine leak having people leave their homes and walk into the green cloud of death would be a bad idea. You're better off staying at home. Maybe the leak is something like methane, which is highly flammable or combustible. If it's an explosion hazard, you probably want to evacuate somebody. So you're constantly looking at that, and that's a decision that the incident commander would be making. Questions about that? From there, weather. Weather plays a role. Things like wind, speed, and direction are important. We are fortunate in that we live in a city that is on the East Coast. 
which means that very frequently the prevailing wind is westerly. It's coming from the west, heading out east so over the water, which means that the wind is just going to spread it someplace where no one is. But if you have an easterly wind coming in off the water, now whatever cloud is there is going to be moved inland. Something to consider. The other thing is precipitation. If you've got something that's caustic like acid and it begins to rain, yeah, upside, the product gets washed out of the sky. Downside, you've got acid rain. So again, it may, there's, there's always the pro and the con that you have to weigh. There's also the phenomenon of micro weather. If you stop to think about where wind speed and direction is measured, it's measured at Logan Airport, which is where you have an open area where you can get an accurate reading. The problem is the wind direction at Logan Airport is going to be different than the wind direction at the corner of, of Battery March, right, and um, downtown. It's just going to be different because the wind whips around those buildings. So the micro weather in an area, in, in town, might be different than the wind direction in West Roxbury or Eastie or Brighton. So we do measure micro weather. The fire department has um, portable weather instruments they can set up to establish what the micro weather is. Our supervisor's vehicles have similar devices. So this way we can monitor what's going on here as opposed to what's going on over at Logan. Questions about micro weather, logistics, and those considerations. All right. So when we talk about hazardous materials, one of the considerations is, well, what's our role? I mean, who am I? Why am I here? What am I going to do with my life? So the role of EMS is medical consequence. Something has gone wrong medically, and our role is to deal with that, okay? So that's the most important part of our of our um, respons responsibility. In addition to that, we might be called upon to monitor the individuals that are going to go entering this event. When the hazmat team decides, yes, we're gonna send in an entry team, every hazmat team has predetermined standards as far as limits on heart rate, blood pressure, um, stuff, body temperature, so that if someone is tachycardic and hypertensive already, they're not going to be put in a suit and into that stressful situation. So pre-entry monitoring of personnel might be something we do. And if we're going to monitor them before they go in to make sure they're able to go in, we're also going to monitor them as they come out to make sure they're okay. So pre-entry monitoring and post-entry monitoring are actually part of that 
medical consequence package for which we might be responsible. Depending upon the assets available, we might be responsible for rehabilitation as well. Very often the fire service will have their own rehab unit. They will have a truck that's special, specially designed to carry rehabilitation materials, set up a tent, it'll have air conditioning in the summer, heat in the, in the winter, it'll have uh, portable cots, it'll have um, fluids, uh, portable fluids, drinkable fluids. So they may be doing rehab or we may be part of that. So rehab is part of our role. And certainly treatment. You know, treatment might initially be started by the entry team in the event. There they have a patient who maybe has got, is bleeding from a wound. Maybe they put a tourniquet or a bandage on there before dragging them into, through contaminant, contaminants. Um, maybe they started O2 on this patient, who knows. But before care is transferred to you, that patient needs to be deconned. And once they're deconned, then we will assume responsibility for their care. I would like to say it's unusual for us to get stuck with a contaminated patient, but the fact is very often patients that we don't even realize were contaminated end up in our care because no one figured out that this was a hazmat yet. If that's the case, as soon as you recognize you have a patient who should have been deconned and wasn't, you need to let the hospital know. Every hospital has a decon asset. They either have a decon room or they have decon showers in the ambulance bay or they have a, a freestanding trailer that can be opened up into a decontamination station. You need to let them know because you don't want to contaminate an entire hospital with this one patient. So to summarize all of what we talked about regarding hazardous materials, we're always worried about safety first. So that means keeping your distance, okay? Making sure you're approaching cautiously, making sure you're establishing um, a perimeter. We want to identify the product if possible, or at least the hazard class, and notify our dispatcher so that we can get the appropriate units coming to us. Again, resources. We mentioned approaching cautiously and establishing a perimeter. We don't want any more patients than we already have. We certainly don't want to become a victim ourselves. Now the uh, additional resources arrive. They've decided they're gonna go enter into this event. They're gonna start suiting up. So we'll be doing some pre-entry monitoring and as they exit the scene, post-entry monitoring. We'll be doing some rehab with them. We'll be doing the treatment of the patient and of any, um, and of, any of the team members. And that's really our role. And that's what we do with a hazmats, okay? Any questions about hazardous materials? Nope. 
Okay. So Captain, I noticed that we have 47. Yeah, that means there's 45 of them. I, I, I know that there's, uh, there's like two that are missing that should be accounted for and a couple people are having some um, Wi-Fi problems tonight. So it's a little bit glitchy on them. A little glitchy, I see. All right. Well, we do need to take care of our housekeeping issues. Yes. So let's start off at the top with reminding everybody again, quiz 11, Thursday, 7.30, special populations. 7.30 or 7 o'clock? Sorry, 7 o'clock, 1900. That's what happens when I try and talk not in regular time. 1900, 7 p.m. So some other items of note, some good news, I suppose, depending upon your perspective. We're going to resume in-person operations with practical work starting this Saturday. This Saturday was a scheduled day and rather than losing yet another double session and adding another week onto our um, schedule, we're gonna start this Saturday. A word about the schedule. So here on out, it's going to be practical. This Saturday, every Tuesday and Thursday, just like normal. Um, and then another Saturday class, two weeks, Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Thursday. Another Saturday class, two weeks. And then at that last week after that are our finals. All right, so let me give people dates here a little bit. So class dates, today the 19th and the 21st are still online. Saturday, nine, uh, the May 23rd, Third. 9 a.m. Tuesday the 26th, 7 p.m. Thursday the 28th of May, 7 p.m. Tuesday, the 2nd of June, Thursday, the 4th of June, both at 7 p.m. EMT class, which was regularly scheduled anyways, the um, 6th of, of June. I'm just gonna interrupt for a second, Captain. That was supposed to be your practical final. It's not going to be your practical final, it's a practical day. <laughs> but the review session that we had scheduled for the Friday before the practical final, will not be held that Friday. We will okay. have a class the Friday before the practical, but that's going to be a couple of weeks after that. I'm sorry, Captain. No problem. Uh, yes, Ms. Lima. Hi, I just had a question for people who are not able to attend these classes due to like, you know, just personal or um, family reasons. Um, are you guys able to work with them or what's going on with that? So by if by work with them, you mean what? I have a child and I don't have proper daycare right now. Sorry, class, but this is personal. I, just well, I understand that. I thought because the thing is, I mean, if you cannot attend the, the practicals, then you won't be finishing the course with your class. So what does that mean? Do I have to start all over? 
No, what it means is either you're going to have to arrange time subsequent to whenever you're able to, to make up those 16 classes, mm -hmm. because we missed 11 classes plus another five, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. um, or um, what you can do is you can try to make up those, those, those classes in the next EMT course without taking the entire course. That becomes problematic in that now you're going to be going for quite a long time without being able to, you know, use that knowledge. And usually retention suffers. So, I mean, by-, by But Captain, I, some of us have like real issues where like it's our family involved, kids, family, you know, we have kids. Our kids can't like have classes right now or summer camp. So um, I don't oh. know when that's gonna come back I'm sorry, Captain. I well, didn't, I didn't say anything. No, no, I was jumping in there. Um, we understand, first of all, uh, we understand that, that there is no childcare being provided for most people right now. We get that. Um, we, I'm not to intervene, Captain, but both my parents, which is my soul, like they're the people that help me. They both work within the medical field. So it's just kind of like iffy for me right now. So I was just wondering, do you guys like make any exceptions? Well, what I was going to say is what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to talk to people individually, not in a group setting about issues that they have. And so what mm -hmm. we'll do is we'll set up a time to set up, um, we'll, we'll make it before class on Thursday, before the test time, we'll open up and we'll have individual discussions with people about issues that they may have and about what concerns and what we can figure out. So let's let's put that off. Um, okay. That's more of a one-on-one -on -one discussion. Okay, but thank you, good. Captain. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, like special situations, you know, are taken into consideration because I do have a special situation. No, and we are certainly sensitive to that, but by special consideration, you have to understand um, no one is going to go to the state exam without completing the course. Of course. So if the state exam is scheduled for, and I'm going to hopefully push for the end of July, and you and two or three or four, or however many other people have not finished the course, you will not take, be taking the state exam with the class. Okay. So then the question becomes, how quickly can we and efficiently manage that, right? So we're, if, if five of you can't do it, and all of you are missing 10 classes, we're not holding 50 more classes. That's not, we just- I totally understand that, Captain, and I- so We will like, try to coordinate. I understand that. So we will try to coordinate with you guys, with whomever can't make it. Um, hopefully, and I, and I mean this not just from a selfish perspective- No, of course. From the class's perspective, but also for you, hopefully the situations regarding childcare and other stuff will resolve shortly whatever that means <laughs> and then you'll be able to pick up from that point and then we'll see how far we can get you and what we need to do to move forward no that's all i needed answer and i'm glad that you guys are like actually thinking about us thank you okay so back to the um let's let me give out the schedule everybody i know there's a ton of questions and i we know you're gonna have questions just hold off a second. Yes, 
we're gonna send out an email so you have it written down, but we would rather give you the dates up front right now so that way you can get the information as soon as possible. We wanna make sure everybody has an understanding about this first. Give us a minute. We, we understand that there's a lot going on and that's, that's true for all of us. We're gonna try and make this the best for everybody for what we can do, okay? So let me finish with the dates. The last date I ended on was Saturday the 6th, EMT class. We don't have it on the 5th. We now have, we still have it on the 6th. The 9th was supposed to be your written exam. It's just a regular practical now, okay? So we're June 9th, we're still coming to class. The 11th, we were still scheduled to come to class because it was supposed to be remediation day. It's no longer remediation day. It is a full practical, okay? Then we go to the 16th, a Tuesday, also EMT class, regular time, the 18th, regular time, and now we have our first of a back-to-back -back Saturday, the 20th, followed by the 23rd, which will be your written final. We have not picked a date for test three yet. We will let you know about test three. It will be one of the practical days, I promise. The 25th will be practical, along with the 26th being review session and practical makeup as well. And then the 27th will be your um, practical final, which is the thing you must pass. And then on the 30th, we would have remediation, leaving grades to be, um, published uh, the probably the following week because it's Thursday, July 2nd. Um, and depending on how things are going, we don't know what we have scheduled. We know the 4th of July has been canceled, but we don't know what other events will be uh, scheduled. So it will be either be, he'll release the, the grades on the 2nd or the week following on July 7th, okay? So, those are the dates, those are the where we extended to and what we have. Now, when we show up on Saturday, a couple things will happen. We're going to use the uh, hallway on the fourth floor. We are going to tape out spots six feet apart from people where we're going to scan you in. We will give you a room assignment from there and you will report to that room. So if you're gonna go to the gym, 411, whatever room we give you, go to that area. So that way we're going to only put a small number of people in every room. I wanna remind you, you must have a mask or some kind of face covering. The staff will all be wearing it. You'll have to be wearing it as well, okay? He, look, he's donning his right now. He's so excited about it. But no, it's not your yarmulke. Um, but you must remember, we will have to scan everybody for temperatures. It is one of the things that is required by the PHC because you're on PHC property. So if um, you have a temperature greater than 100, we will be sending you home. And again, um, we will be sending this out as an email. Um, but we wanted to make sure we gave you as much notice because like we said, Saturday was supposed to be a class. And now instead of getting to stay home, 
You actually have to potentially change out of your pajamas. For the first time in several weeks. All right. Now let's open it up to the questions that we know you have. I just want to say thank you, captains, for considering people like me. We are we're we want to get everyone through this. Okay, we want to get everyone through this. We recognize this is not a picnic for anyone. We don't want anyone to be penalized, especially us. Questions, uh, Ms. Ebbs. Hello, captains. Um, I have, I know it's far, but it's just for my work. Um, when we have exams, like reading exams, it's going to be evenings or it's going to be mornings. No, it's the regular time. It's the seven to three, the written exam. Any, the, any of the classes are the seven to 10 PM on the, the Tuesdays, Thursdays, and on the Saturdays, it's 9 AM to 3 PM. Okay. And okay. That's it. So so we might have test three on a Saturday, but it's going to be during a day that we have scheduled class. Okay, okay, right? thank you. It's not gonna be a special time. Okay, perfect, thank you. Any other questions? And again, on the, the written exam. Online class or like, do we have to go in? For what, for the exam? Mm-hmm, exam no, the, the, the final. The, the written final, you're gonna be taking in here. Oh, online? Yes. No. We'll, we'll, we haven't yet decided about the, the written final. We'll, we'll get back to you on that. But test three will be in person here. Oh, in person. Okay, thank you. Okay. Our captain, for practicals, we will be using mannequins, correct? For the most part, yes. As much as is possible. There are some things that it, it just isn't efficacious. For instance, splinting is really tough using a mannequin. So we will be providing gloves for that programming though, right? We will provide gloves. You and, have to provide the mask. Yes. And um, hand sanitizer. Both of those things will be available. Okay. okay. And then we have another question about quiz 12. That will be regular back in class quiz 12. It will be like the start of day, just like before. Yep. Ms. Ebbs, you have another question? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, for this Saturday, do we have specific uh, information for like, is it gonna be trauma assessment or it's everything? Just so one of the things, this is one of those scheduling things that just kind of, I won't say popped up, it's something we've been discussing, but this is the first uh, opportunity we've had. They, give, they gave us the go ahead. Okay. So a lot's gonna depend upon staff. If we have, a robust staff, then we'll be able to do stuff like assessment or stuff, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we have a limited number, then we still have to address the, the psychomotor skills like okay. splinting and boarding. So that's something that we can do with a pared down staff. Assessments, not so much because we like to have small groups for that. Okay, thank you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Now's the time. Uh, like I said, the captain will be. Go ahead, Mr. Lou. Unmute yourself, Mr. Lou. Mr. Lou. Okay, yep. All right, so yeah. for Tuesdays and Thursdays classes, are we also coming in, lining up six feet apart, 
and are we going to be distributed to different devices as well or are we all meeting into no this is going to be the way it is we don't want people 48 of you congregating in a small space so we're going to be opening up the doors um pretty much a half hour before class begins so what will happen is as people arrive we'll start scanning and assigning scanning and assigning okay and i would assume the rooms are going to be different day by day or kept for the same room for throughout the program exactly how many rooms do you think we have I mean, like no, I, I think he means the assignments, Captain. Like one day you'll be assigned to 411, the next day will you be assigned to the gym, or will you always be assigned to go to 411? Yeah, it's, exactly. it's really going to depend upon the staffing. Okay. okay. If we have enough staff to staff groups in 411, the O'Neill, and the gym, then we'll try to keep people in the same place for the most part. Although, those rooms are also in use during the day. So it's not like it's going to be, okay, the EMT class was here. We're cordoning it off so that only those people's germs are in there. But we certainly will be sanitizing those areas, you know, after you leave and between. So it really shouldn't make that much, make that much of a difference. Okay. Okay. Yep. But in order to make things move, work smoother, we will try to do that, but that that's going to need to be one of those decisions that we do prior to the event. And yes, the, the class times are the same class times. Captain, what time did you say we're opening up a half hour before, right? Half hour before. Yeah, so if, if class is supposed to start at seven, we, we normally we would open up at five. We're not opening up at five. We don't have the, the space. We don't have the staffing. So we will be opening up at 630. If the class starts at nine on a Saturday morning, we'll be opening up at 8.30. And it's basically to make sure that we're here and able to send people to the appropriate area. Um, so that's that. Uh, what was the question about the, the slides? The handout, Mr. Norman? No, just unmute yourself, don't type. Yeah, I was just wondering about the, um, is there only one slide on the uh, handout? Because the only one I have is the only one that I saw on the uh, page with, on the um, website was four pages for today. Four pages? Yeah. Did you, did you, did you turn it into the three? It's I did. I four see. pages, but three slides per page, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's what I like meant, yeah. Like, Okay, so you're just wondering if you're missing any. Yeah. Okay, and no, oh. it seems like everybody got the same thing. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. That's your question. Okay. Captains, going Wait. forward, oh. is um, Saturday classes what we're doing? Like, is that like what we should be printing out? I mean, I can't print anything out, so I'm just asking, is like Saturday classes everything we're doing going forward? Everything we do going forward is going to be in person now. That's the thing is now. Which is the practicals, right? Right. So any if, if, there's, if there's any other skill sheets we need to give you, we'll give them to you at the practical. So for instance, when we do splinting, we haven't given you that skill sheet yet because we haven't taught you yet. But when you come for the splinting practical, 
we'll give you the splinting sheet just as we did the other sheets. And then, um, no, we are still not planning on scheduling ride-alongs. So, so the question about ride-alongs is at this point, there is still, it is still not, we're still not authorized to put you on an ambulance, nor would we put anyone on an ambulance so that we are still not authorized to do ride-alongs. We will worry about that closer to about midway through June. We will readdress that issue midway through June, okay? So I, I can tell you as of right now, there is no plan on putting you in an ambulance anytime soon. We're gonna call that phase two or three discussion. And a lot of that is also gonna depend upon what OEMS says. I mean, OEMS doesn't want you to be put at risk either. So, right. Are there any other questions? Have we addressed everybody's uh, concerns or questions so far? And um, uh, like I said, if you have a concern about practical stuff, if you can send me a note in the chat, um, I will set up a time with you for Thursday, which you will then log on to the Zoom at that time. We'll have a discussion and then we'll d deal with it individually, okay? So if, if, if you have a concern or something like that, I will be uh, arranging appointments for, um, for you. And it could be, it might be before six o'clock. We might have it around five. We might have that between five and six because we open up regular classroom at six, okay? So um, I, think that's, I think that's it. I just wanna make sure that everybody got to hear that. One person was having problems. I will let them know. All right, any other questions at this point, or we can continue on with the regularly scheduled program? Why don't we give them five minutes to stretch, get the blood circulating, get, get over the shock and awe of the fact that we're coming back. Yay! I'm really excited. I wish I could just be there, but um, I'm down with the questions. No problem. All right, we'll see everybody back at eight.
All right, we're back. How's everyone doing? Okay, so now we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk a bit about. Uh, wait one one second, Captain. Sorry, um, for a couple of you that had to glit that glitched out and stuff like that. If you have concerns or questions about returning to the practical, you're supposed to send me a private note in the chat, and then I will send you a time and uh, to meet with the captains uh, via the the Zoom call. Okay, so I just want to remind everybody that that's how we'll be doing that. Thank you, Cap. Sorry. No problem. So we're going to move from hazardous materials to multiple casualty incidents. Okay. Um, again, these are low frequency, but high risk, high intensity type calls. Um, every so often we do have a small scale multiple casualty incident, if you will. Um, sometimes it's just a, a, a bus accident or a train accident, a derailment. Um, and then every once in a while, we get a very, very large event. I will say, however, that we are fortunate in the city in that um, we literally have almost a half dozen prearranged, pre-planned multiple casualty incidents. We've got the 4th of July, we have the marathon, we've got Boston calling, assuming none of this stuff gets canceled. So we've got large scale events that we have on a regular basis that allow us to take a look and critically um, figure out what needs to be fixed, what, what we like, what we don't like, um, and critically look at our capabilities. So that is very, very, very fortunate for us. It's not like we have to wait for the bad one to think about a large scale event. So when we talk about multiple casualty incidents. Um, we think usually in terms of disasters and the question becomes, what's a disaster? Other than perhaps the last few months. So a disaster is when your available resources are overwhelmed. So this could be a, a pretty um, variable sort of thing. For instance, if Captain Selfidi and I are working um, in an ambulance and it's just the two of us and we on site or we are dispatched to a, um, an incident and it ends up being two cars involved in a high speed collision, each car has got four people, in that moment, our resources are overwhelmed. We've got eight critical patients and just two of us. Now, we would not call that or consider that to be a multiple casualty incident of the scope of a huge MCI. But in that moment of time, we are overwhelmed. You can also have a disaster where it's very clear that no matter what you do, you're going to be overwhelmed. For instance, a hurricane is bearing down, it's a storm of the century, and you know that there's going to be a significant prolonged operation. It's going to be a disaster. There's no doubt that you're going to be overwhelmed and it's going, you're gonna be overwhelmed for a while. So a disaster 
is anytime your available resources are overwhelmed, and then there are some events that are more disastrous than others. When we talk about events, disasters, we can kind of carve them up into certain niches. We can look at them from a couple of different characteristics. For instance, you can have a small MCI. For instance, that car accident I described. You could have a large MCI. It was a school bus with 40 students. You could have a much larger MCI, a train derailed during rush hour with 180 passengers. So you could have a small, more manageable event. You could have a really large event. The thing about mass casualty planning is you try to put into place a plan that you can use in all of those circumstances. You can modify, you can flex, right? Another characteristic is whether or not this event is active or contained. By that I mean, once the event occurs, is it over? Or is it going to evolve, okay? So for instance, when we're talking about um, a car accident, that is pretty much a contained event. The car accident happens and the number of patients or the number of patients, that's it, we're done. But there are other incidents that are likely to evolve. For instance, if you have a building fire, you might not have any patients initially, but now a couple of firefighters might be injured. There might be some bystanders. So now this is an active incident. It is growing, okay? So that might be a possibility. Another aspect of it is, well, location. Is it an open event? Is it an event that's outside, like the 4th of July, the marathon? Those are all outdoor events. And so now there are things you have to worry about. You have to worry about weather, shelter, lighting, things like that. Or is the event closed? Is it indoors? For instance, a T accident. So now you're on a platform. At least you're sheltered. But if you're enclosed, is there going to be a smoke condition? So these are aspects of an event that you want to look at and, and now you're going to start making some decisions as to how you're going to manage them. Regardless of what type of event. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to ask a question. Sure. Um, so say there's a police officer or, um, you know, a first responder, fireman, us responding to the scene and he's hurt. Are we responsible for that um, firefighter and that um, police officer? You're responsible for everyone on that scene as far as a medical consequence goes. Okay. All right. Yes. Cool. So now task management. If you stop to think about all of the tasks that we discussed, we're responsible for during a call, right? You arrive on scene, you need to do your scene size up. So that's a responsibility that you and I, when we're on a call, need to fulfill. And then when we're done assessing the scene, 
we need to take a look at our patient and we have to assess our patient. And then we have to treat our patient, package our patient. We need to load our patient and transport our patient. So all of those tasks on a mundane everyday call, the baby with a fever, the asthma patient, the someone hurt my feelings, the I, I rolled my ankle call, all of those tasks are done by just you and your partner. But if you're talking about a multiple casualty incident, you can't just arrive with your partner and grab the first patient you see. Because all those patients, all those potential patients are your responsibility. So obviously you cannot manage one patient from beginning to end. So the way we manage a multiple casualty incident, a large scale event, is we manage those tasks, but we delegate responsibility for those tasks to specific individuals. So one person may be in charge of assessing, one person's in charge of treating, and one person's in charge of allocating ambulances for transport. So this way, everything is done efficiently. And that's what multiple casualty incident planning is all about. How do you manage all these tasks for each of the patients given the limited resources you have? Okay. So questions about that overview of multiple casualty incidents. Okay, good enough. When we're talking about a multiple casualty incident, there are stages this event will work its way through. The first stage is called the alarm stage. The alarm stage, like any of these stages, is going to be varied in duration, depending upon the situation. For instance, if you're talking about the 4th of July, this year notwithstanding, or the marathon, the alarm phase or stage for that event begins 360 days in advance. So when the marathon is over, we take about four days off and not think about the marathon. And then the people who worry about the marathon start thinking about the next marathon that next week. So that alarm phase is a little under a year long, right? Now, certainly with things like the 4th of July, first night, things like that, we have that luxury. So you're able to pre-plan. There are other events where that alarm phase is obviously going to be shorter. It's a Saturday night in December, and the weather, the, the, the US Weather Service has advised everybody that there is going to be a snowmageddon. The, a, a, yet another blizzard of the century is bearing down on New England, and it's going to hit on Wednesday. Well, now our alarm phase is about four to five days long. And we can start thinking, how many additional ambulances do we want? How are we gonna staff them? If we get snowed in, what do we do with our people that have to sleep overnight here? 
What are we doing for additional people as far as shift work goes? So now we are planning, but we don't have as much time. And then from there, you've got other shorter intervals. Maybe Logan picks up the phone and calls dispatch operations and says, hey, thought you should know, we have a plane coming in that lost their hydraulics. They're about half an hour out and there's about 400 people on that plane. So now you've got a half an hour to get your pieces in place. And then of course, there's just the, hi, a plane just crashed and you have no pre-alarm time. So again, the alarm phase is, starts with the warning of an expected incident. You may have some pre-planning already in the books, and then there might be tweaking of that plan, that pre-plan, just in time. So it's like, okay, listen, we've got this, this train crash, this plane crash, um, the rule book is kind of going out the window, what do you want to do now? So you have to be able to be fluid and dynamic and flexible. After the alarm phase, you have the working phase. The working phase begins the moment you start deploying assets, the moment you start assigning assets. So for instance, with the plane coming into Logan, the working phase begins with the dispatch of ambulance one, paramedic one, the division supervisor, and the shift commander to Logan at the north gate waiting for the plane. That starts, that commences the working stage. Okay, With the 4th of July, we dedicate material to the scene about 48 hours before the event, and we staff the rehearsal. So for us, we start working that event about 24 hours before the big event starts. So again, things are in place. Sometimes we have no warning, in which case it just begins with dispatch. It also includes the evacuation of individuals, of, of people in the neighborhood. It involves the staging of assets, like I said, for instance, at a big event, and also working at the active incident. Obviously, once you've got assets assigned and they start working, they start assessing patients, transporting patients, that's all part of that working stage. Okay. Questions about that? The last part of this staged response is de-escalation. De-escalation begins when assigned assets are released. So for instance, if we have a fire standby, a triple decker is in flames, we've dedicated an ambulance, a paramedic truck, and a shift commander to this event, and the firefighters pretty much have assigned or dedicated 12 pieces of apparatus to this event, and now the fire is knocked down. Well, now the fire chief is going to be releasing pieces of apparatus from the scene. They've begun to de-escalate. The shift commander decides, I'm going to release paramedic one. 
going to hold on to ambulance one. We've begun to de-escalate. De-escalation is complete when all of the assigned units, all of the assigned assets have been released, either to go back to citywide service or released to go home for like say a big scale event. Something like the 4th of July, you know, the fireworks go off at around nine o'clock and then usually by about 10 o'clock, everyone has left the esplanade but us because we have to stay until everyone's gone. And now we start to de-escalate. We start releasing units. We start gathering our gear. So that, that event may not be completely de-escalated as far as personnel go until midnight and as far as materials go until the next day. Another part of de-escalation is the recovery to pre-incident functioning. Think in terms of large-scale disasters. For um, New Orleans, after Katrina, their de-escalation stage, their recovery phase, lasted months, years, because they lost infrastructure. And it took a lot of time to get to the point where they were made whole compared to the pre-incident. Okay. You have a beautiful puppy, Mr. Meager. Um, the World Trade Center. That recovery operation went on for a year and a half because they had to take care of infrastructure. There were subway stations that were closed. So from an EMS perspective, recovery was complete after a few months, after a month or so, a couple of months, but from a asset recovery period, it can be prolonged. Questions about de-escalation? Okay. So we know that mass casualty incidents, multiple large-scale events can occur. How do we manage them? Well, you know, September 11th taught us a very valuable lesson. For a long period of time, close to two decades, different agencies, first responder agencies, police, EMS, fire department, had used pieces of what's called the incident command system to plan for large scale events, multiple casualty incidents. And the genesis of this incident command system was, interestingly enough, the forestry service. Because if you think about an event that involves a large geographical area, multiple agencies, and multiple jurisdictions, you really can't get much bigger than a forest fire. It involves fire services, it involves law enforcement, it involves all, you know, all sorts of other services, state, county, federal government, all these large entities. And in order to coordinate all of this, you need to have some sort of system. So during the mid 80s, public safety agencies said, 
that looks wicked cool. Let's steal it. And we're not immune from that, so we stole a fair amount of incident command stuff from what was circulating. And even back in the mid-80s, we had a pretty decent incident command strategy. The problem was when 9-11 hit, New York City lost enormous amounts of resources and assets. A fair number of their EMTs and EMS emergency personnel perished, um, their command staff perished um, at the World Trade Center. So they needed help from other jurisdictions. So other jurisdictions sent teams, what we call DMAT teams, disaster medical assistance teams, to New York, Massachusetts, LA, Ohio were the first ones boots on the ground up there. However, even though we all had a pretty good idea as to what the incident command system was, we were using different terms. There was no standardization. So the federal government decided after 9-11 that they needed to step in. And what they did was they dedicated large amounts of FEMA money, Federal Emergency Management Agency money, to training first responders in a standardized national incident management system. And just to give you an idea of the scope of this undertaking, in the space of a year and a half, every EMT, every police officer, every firefighter in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts sat in a large banquet hall somewhere listening to retired fire chiefs from down south teach the FEMA National Incident Management System. And now, once you become an EMT, your agency is responsible for making sure that you get the introductory level National Incident Management System training. And you can do that online even before you become an EMT, you can do it. So the National Incident Management System was devised by the folks at FEMA to standardize everything involving management of a large scale event. Everything from forest fires to building fires, to planes into buildings, to bombs, to anything that you can imagine, this National Incident Management System can be used to manage. So it standardized terms, things like incident commander, themes like task force, strike team, things like um, public information officer. Um, so all the terms that any agency would use would be clearly understood by any other agency anywhere else in the country. The training, the training is standardized training. It's FEMA training, period. As an EMT, there's two four-hour courses you take. And then if you become a supervisor, there are two more courses you take. And as you become more involved in planning, there's more courses you take. 
So it goes from ICS 100 to 200 to 300, all the way up to 800. So there's eight to 10 courses involved. You don't have to take all of them, but you do have to take the ones that are in your um, basically scope of practice. It also standardizes positions. So when you talk about what does a triage officer do, everyone knows what a triage officer does. So if someone, if I'm helping in Florida at a hurricane site and they say, you're gonna be triage officer, I know what that means because we're all trained the same. If someone says to Captain Salfidi, you're going to be transportation officer, she knows what that means because we've all been trained. So it standardizes all this stuff, which allows us to function. In addition, this whole national incident management system is flexible. It's designed to meet your needs, regardless of how big or how small the event. So if you have a large event, you can expand it. You can add personnel, you can add positions, you can add responsibilities. If it's a small event, then you can contract it. You can only, you only need to use maybe two positions. If you start off with a small event and it gets worse, you can make it bigger. If you start off with a awfully large event and it gets smaller, you can contract it. So it's very flexible. You can pick and choose what components you need. If you need to have a logistics component, a logistics officer, then you plug it in. If it's going to be a short term small event and you don't need a logistics officer, you don't use it, you keep that off, okay? So again, it gives you this, this flexibility. Essentially, the National Incident Management System training serves as a template. It serves as a guide, a scheme, and you can mix and match as you choose, but you have to use the standardized terms, training, and positions, okay? Questions about that? One of the key concepts in national incident management system training is something called the unified incident command structure. That's a mouthful. I mentioned that this has its beginnings, its genesis in a large scale event that involves multiple jurisdictions and multiple agencies, which means there's an awful lot of people that are gonna to wanna to be in charge. There's going to be a police chief, there's gonna be a fire chief, there's going to be an EMT paramedic, there's going to be um, an Indian chief, there's gonna be everybody's gonna to wanna to be in charge. The Unified Incident Command structure recognizes that there needs to be a lead person from every agency involved in decision-making. We don't want an EMT or a paramedic person making decisions about law enforcement. I don't want law enforcement making decisions about firefighting. I don't want firefighters making decisions about anything else. So what it means is we have to get those leaders in one place 
so they can provide a uniformed command. In any event, there's also going to be a single individual that's in charge of the overall event. And that could be a fire chief because it's a hazmat incident. It could be an EMT because this is strictly a medical situation. It might be a police officer because it's a crime scene. Maybe it's a bombing or an active shooter incident. So the Unified Incident Command System is designed to have a clearly identified chain of command. The leaders are all talking to each other and we're all cooperating, okay? Questions about Unified Incident Command. And when you have an event with all of these people, they are usually located or co-located, I should say, at a command post. And the ideal command post is far enough away that the individuals are not tempted to join the event, but close enough that they can get eyes on things, that they can be aware of stuff. Another key concept, in addition to Unified Incident Command, is span of control. Stop to think about how many people you, just you as an individual, could keep an eye on, could manage, okay? And this gets to accountability. If you have too many people for whom you are responsible, then you are likely to lose somebody or someone's not gonna be able to do their job and you're not gonna know it. So there is an ideal span of control. In EMS, or in fact, in the National Incident Management System, we kind of look at between four and eight as being a good span of control, six to seven being ideal. So when you take a look at, for instance, um, the military, intuitively the military as far back as the ancient Romans understood this. You had centurions in charge of a hundred soldiers. And then within the hundred soldiers, because the Romans were frankly kind of hooked on tens, they had someone who was in charge of a group of 10. In the modern military, you have a team with a team leader, and then you're going to have maybe a company, and then you have a platoon, and then you, and then you move on from there. The fire department does a fabulous job of this. At, on any piece of fire apparatus, you're going to have five firefighters. One of them is going to be an officer. So right there, the span of control is four. So if you have three fire trucks, you're going to have 12 to 15 people. Well, there's going to be three officers and they're going to be in charge of four to five people. So span of control is a very important piece of the ICS or the NIMS system. Okay. Another key part of the National Incident Management System is something called Incident Action Plans. An Incident Action Plan is your goals and objectives for 
this period. So if you have a very large, long-scale, long-term event, for instance, let's talk about the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. That event is going to last months, which means that you need to have a plan. What are you going to do for the first 12 hours? What are you going to do for the second 12 hours? What are you going to do for the third? So what you do is you build out a plan with objectives. The first 12 hours, we want to rescue survivors. And then when you change your operational period, the next 12 hours start, the two teams cross paths. Hey, how'd you do with the objectives? We were able to um, complete objective one and objective two. Objective three is incomplete. All right, let's cross off one and two. Let's start, continue working on three. And now moving forward, we have objective four and five. So this way, everyone knows what you're working toward. So your incident action plans are for an operational period. And they have your objectives, your progress, your, how you're doing. And also, it serves as a way of communicating over a period of time and serves as a record of what's going on. And in fact, the national, um, the folks in the federal government, the folks in FEMA, if you're looking to recover money from this emergency, you have to keep incident action plans and records of what's transpiring during this event so that you can present them to FEMA and get money back if you need it. So questions about the National Incident Management System. As I said, it'll be, there's a course that you can, these are, there, these are courses you will take, you can take. You can take them online if you like. You can take them in person. Pretty much they're about as exciting as watching paint dry. And it's a day of your life that you'll never get back. From an EMS perspective, the, the NIMS system provides a template of positions. Now you may populate these positions or you may choose not to. One of the first positions obviously you're going to have to fill at any event is who is your commander? Who is the incident commander? The incident commander is the individual who has overall control and authority at that scene. At a large scale event, that incident commander might have what we call a command staff. These are individuals that can report directly to him or her and fulfill very specific needs. The most important command staff position to be filled is the safety officer. In the fire service at a large scale fire, the ranking fire chief will be the incident commander, but he will designate someone to be the, the safety officer. And that safety officer can um, bring the entire operation to a halt if they feel it's a threat. They can, he can say, everyone out of the building, let's go, we're gonna fight it from outside. And we also, if we have a large scale event, will populate that position. 
we will have a member of the supervisory or command staff be designated the safety officer. And the safety officer's job is to make sure that everyone has the personal protective equipment, make sure that all hazards are mitigated as they arise, making sure that the people, his people are safe, that the people for the agency are safe. Another type, a couple of uh, positions that might be populated are the public information officer. The public information officer is the individual designated by the incident commander to update media. The incident commander may not have time to say, all right, I'm gonna go have an interview with, with Channel 5. But if, if, the, if the press is looking for answers, then the incident commander might say, okay, listen, where's my public information officer? Come on over here. You're gonna be my spokesperson. This is what I want you to tell them. Stick to the party line. Don't go all Trump on me. Just stick to the talking points. They may have a liaison officer. The liaison officer is the individual who interfaces with other agencies, but not at the command level. Pretty much they interface with other liaison officers. So for instance, if I'm the incident commander and I need some information from the fire incident commander, I may not necessarily go directly to him. I may say to my liaison officer, listen, go find out how many people they have dedicated to this, to this event. I'm busy doing this. And now my liaison officer goes to his liaison officer and says, listen, we're looking for the number of people you have dedicated to this event. And either he will know or he will find out. And that's how communication happens. And then sometimes we'll have an intelligence officer. This is the individual who is gathering critical information from all other sources and packages it up for the incident commander. So for instance, we might have an intelligence officer they're never intelligent. There's no sign of intelligence here. And the intelligence officer might be located or embedded with the police department. And they're getting information, for instance, okay, listen, this is an active shooter incident. We recognize there's supposedly three people involved. Um, we also know that there's another event happening um, in another part of the city that might be related. So now this information is all coming together. There's going to be, in addition to your incident commander, an operations officer. The operations officer is responsible for overseeing the active incident. This is the individual that's going to be giving the incident commander information regarding the event. Now, depending upon the size and scope of the incident, this position, the operations officer, might be assumed by the incident commander themselves. So instead of having an incident commander plus an operations officer, you have the incident commander who's also acting as the operations officer. And the operations officer is responsible for several pieces of the EMS operation. Triage. Triage is the assessment and sorting of patients. The triage officer reports to the operations officer. Treatment. 
the treatment officer is the individual in charge of the treatment area. So when patients are transferred from the triage officer to the treatment area, the treatment officer is the one who starts treatment. And the treatment officer reports directly to the operations officer. And then you've got transportation. At events, we frequently divide transportation, the skill, the act, into three, into three parts. There's staging, that's where additional units go to be summoned. Loading, that's where the units, once they're at staging, are dispatched to to pick up patients. And extrication or extraction, those are individuals that are bringing patients from triage to treatment. So depending upon your personnel and how many people you have, you could have two to three people involved in transportation. You could have a half dozen people involved in extrication alone. If you stop to think about it, at the marathon, we had dozens of extrication and extraction personnel, all the volunteers with wheelchairs. So they were part of the transportation section. So staging is where assets go to wait until they're summoned. Loading is where the transporting assets, the ambulances go to pick up patients. Okay. So if I'm at a call, if I'm at a mass multiple casualty incident and we need a dozen ambulances, I don't want those ambulances showing up to the active incident because when EMTs show up at these calls, they get involved in the call and they leave their ambulances empty without keys. So now all I have is empty ambulances. I want those 12 ambulances to go to the staging area. And I want the people driving those ambulances to stay with their ambulances. I will worry as the incident commander about who I put in my key positions, but the people in the ambulances that are gonna transport, I want them to stay with their ambulances at the staging area. Questions about that? Okay. From there, we have communications. Communications is a vital part of any MCI or multiple casualty incident event. It's one of the weakest links in any plan, and we found that out at 9-11, where, uh, where we had New York City police, Boston Fire from different boroughs, transit police, Port Authority of New York, New Jersey police, all of these agencies with radios that could not talk to each other. The New York City Fire Department is so large that each borough has its own dispatch center and has its own radio frequencies. So when units from Staten Island and Queens showed up in Manhattan, they had a tough time talking to the folks that were working in Manhattan. And the transit police couldn't talk to NYPD. 
and never mind the police couldn't talk to the fire. We've learned that lesson. It was a hard lesson to learn. So now everyone in a jurisdiction basically has a radio that is programmed with the same radio channels and a bank of radio channels that is designated interoperability. So on my portable radio, I've got a half dozen radio channels that are called IOP channels, interoperability channels. And the police officer in Hyde Park has got those same radio channels. And the firefighter in Everett has the same radio channels. And the um, state police out in Athol have the same radio channels. Now, none of us use them day to day, but if a bad event happens, we have the ability, everybody, to go to the same radio channel so we have that interoperability. Also with communications, you have to understand that life doesn't stop or slow down just because there's a bad event, a big event. Your dispatch operation center still has to manage grandma having the heart attack, the baby with a fever, and the kid hit by a car. So the day-to-day -day calls still come in and still have to be managed by the dispatch ops folks. That having been said, it's an awful lot to ask for someone to manage citywide dispatch and also manage this event. So we will designate somebody in dispatch ops, the tactical operations officer. And that individual is responsible for manning the radio for this event. And we will actually change radio channels from our citywide dispatch to a, a channel dedicated to the event. And we will find a different voice, the tactical operator on that radio channel. So now the citywide dispatcher continues dispatching to the rest of the city and the tactical operations dispatcher is dedicated to the event. And we do that for large scale events as well. So the citywide dispatcher manages the city, and then we have an event tactical operator at the marathon, at the 4th of July, at Boston Calling, who manages the radio on that channel for that event. Also, also crucial to communications is CMED. We met CMED when we talked about communications, and you'll recall that they're responsible for doing entry notifications. CMED is a regional asset, okay? It is uh, operated by an agency for an entire region. So Boston happens to operate CMED for the entire area within 128, okay? CMED not only manages entry notifications, but CMED is responsible for the disaster network. The moment a big scale event hits, the CMED operator is going to start getting in touch with all the hospitals in the area 
and letting them know that there is a large scale event. And the CMED operator will find out what space, what beds they have available. And the CMED operator is going to be the one giving destinations to the ambulances for transport at this event. And, and CMED does that through um, the loading officer, through the transportation officer. Here in Boston, we have something called BAMA. That's, called, that's the Boston Area Mutual Aid Channel. That is a channel that is used only by EMS in this area. And if we need additional units to assist us from the private ambulances in the area, we can go on BAMA and request assistance. For instance, do we, is there a, uh, an ambulance available to handle a motor vehicle collision in East Boston? This is Cataldo, we have an ambulance available if you need it. So BAMA is an asset that we use for mutual aid. So questions about communications. Part of any MCI plan is planning. And I will tell you that Captain Salfidi and I are very aware of our mass casualty incident plan. We teach our mass casualty incident plan to recruits. We teach it and create exercises for our, our members of service. But no matter how complete, no matter how robust your plan is, when the proverbial poop hits the fan, things are gonna change. Things are, as we say, fluid and dynamic. So even though we have this plan and it's a good plan, it's a wonderful, it's, it's a beautiful plan. It's a most excellent plan. It's the best plan. Um, even though we have it, um, you have to be able to shift gears because there's always going to be something that you didn't think of or something that doesn't go the way you anticipate it. So that's why we do a lot of drilling and that's why we do a lot of what ifs, a lot of tabletop exercises. So yes, there's pre-plans, there are plans in the books, but that's a suggestion, not carved in stone. The National Incident Management System, in addition to having a planning section, also says you might have a logistics and resource section. So for instance, for a large scale event, we'll have a logistics and a resource officer. And these are the individuals we get in touch with when we need stuff. So for instance, if we are at the 4th of July and we're manning a tent and we don't have any O2 or we've run out of O2, we need more O2. So we would get in touch with the logistics or the resource officer and say, hey, this is alpha tent, we're running low on O2 and they will get that equipment to us. Or maybe, we have an overflow or an abundance of patients and we need help. Hey, listen, this is Charlie tent. We've got 35 people in this tent and there's just two of us. We could use some help here. So now the logistics or the resource officer will locate more people and we might shift people back and forth. 
So logistics and resources is responsible for people and equipment and moving them from place to place for supplying them. Logistics and resources may also be part of your special operations division. So maybe, hey, listen, this is lasting longer than we thought here at this fire. We could use some lighting. We could use a generator with lights. So now the logistics officer will get that for you. They might get it from your own people, special operations, or maybe they have to call a different agency. So logistics and resources for long-term big events is crucial. For short, acute events, they may not be necessary. And unfortunately, at the end of the day with the National Incident Management System, they also recognize the need for finance and administration. These are the folks who are going to help you get funding during planning. These are the people that help you get funding after the fact to get to replace your equipment. These are the folks that are going to go get patient care reports for the patients you transported when you couldn't write them because there were 100 of 100 patients. So the finance and administration people are also part of this, this flow chart. From our purposes, the most important parts are the command, the operations, and the communications pieces. The other stuff is more of a long-term sort of thing, okay? Questions about the National Incident Management System. So this is a good place for us to take a quick five minute break. There is no poll question, but you've been nice enough to listen to me bloviate for this long. So let's take a break and then we'll push through the rest, okay? And Captain, just so everybody knows, I did put a calendar up on the learning website with the dates highlighted for everybody. Um, I'm sure the captain will still figure out what kind of email he wants to generate, but there is a quick reference guide calendar up for everybody. All right. Cool. We'll see you in five minutes.
for the last five minutes talking I've been to yourself. talking to myself for the last 32 years okay then and they you started talking that's why none of them were like we're doing well or anything how's everyone doing there you go yeah i'm getting all sorts of an overwhelming response right there so we're going to talk about how this applies in a more practical way okay all of this is all very boring um you know show me a flow chart sort of read this in it all right fine but when push comes to shove and you're in an ambulance and you arrive on scene and get out of your truck and go oh my god where do we start so that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of this evening so you're dispatched to a call. You may or may not know it's an MCI. You are the first arriving EMS unit. As the first arriving EMS unit, you and your partner have to fill the first two key positions in the incident management system. One of you is going to put on your big boy pants and become the incident commander. Now, depending upon the EMS system you work in, depending upon who you're working with, there's no firm answer to who does that. Usually, if Captain Selfidi and I are working together, the incident commander role will be filled by the driver. If I'm working with someone who's brand new, has less you know a year on the job and i'm teching when we arrive as the senior member of the crew i might opt to say i'm going to be the incident commander because the incident commander is someone who you would prefer to have some experience if possible okay when you declare yourself the incident commander i am the incident commander Part of your role, your task, remember we talked about how every call has the same tasks? Your task is to do the scene size up. That's your job as the incident commander. And we have an acronym to help you with that. Show me your shocked face. And that acronym is methane. When you're talking about what I'm responsible for as the incident commander, M is for declare a major incident, okay? So I arrive on scene, we take a look, we realize that this is a, oh my God, awful incident. I get on the radio and I declare this is a major incident. I let the dispatcher know. While I'm doing that, I'm letting the dispatcher know that I am going to be the incident commander and I name myself. This is where I get to name myself. And usually when you name yourself or name an incident, you name it after a geographical property. So for instance, if this is a train crash, a subway crash at auditorium station, then I would become auditorium incident commander and then everyone else who gets a position would be auditorium fill in the blank 
And the reason for this is, it is conceivable that you could have multiple incidents at the same time. So you want to be able to differentiate. So if this is a train crash, you know, at, at auditorium station, I'm auditorium incident commander. Meanwhile, Ms. Ebbs and Ms. LaPierre are responding to a fire um, on Amory Street. And now when they arrive, their Ms. Ebbs is going to become Amory incident commander because these are two separate incidents. Okay. So M is declare your major incident. E is for what is the exact location of this incident. You want your dispatcher to know where this incident is because they're going to be sending you help. So C-22, I'm assuming auditorium command, incident command. The, um, the incident is located on the Green Line Auditorium Station inbound. I'm establishing my command post at the corner of Mass and Boylston. Have the next arriving units report to me at that location. So I've established my position, I've established the incident, and any help that's coming is coming to me at this position. T is for type of incident. What's going on here? We have a green line derailment inbound. So now we know what's going on, as opposed to we have an active shooter down in the, in the subway platform. That's a different type of incident. So we need to know what the type of incident is. As the incident commander, I'm going to be paying note to the hazards. So this is a train crash. It's below grade, it's in a tunnel. So is there smoke? Is there fire? Is the electricity turned off? Is there lighting down there? So I, I have all, I have this laundry list of hazards associated with this type of incident at this location that I'm thinking of. And as I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking about PPE. What do I want my people, what do I need my people to have? I need them to have their high vis on. I need them to have flashlights. Do I need them to have respiratory protection? So I need to be thinking about this as the incident commander, just as Captain Selfidi and I would be thinking about it were we entering a call. Access. Remember that when you have a large scale incident like this, you're not the only people coming to the party. At a train derailment, you're going to have police and fire. At a fire, you're going to have police and fire. So you're going to have other units coming. And some of those units are going to be staking out a significant amount of, of property at this event. The fire department is going to pull up and park right smack as close to the event as they can. Which means that if you have an ambulance parked in their way, that ambulance is now nothing more than a first aid station because it's not moving. So you wanna let your people know what the best access is, okay? 
Auditorium Incident Command, advise the incoming units to report to me at Boylston at Mass. They should approach via Ipswich to Boylston because Mass Ave and Boylston Street inbound is heavily impacted by fire apparatus. So now my crews know how they can get to me. We wanna know the number of potential patients, and this is key, potential patients. We're not, we don't know how many people are down there. We don't know if there are 13 people injured or 25. What we do know is that this is rush hour, and the, and the MBTA representative has said that this was a packed railway. So we need to have bear that in mind. So we know that there's the potential for 120 people to be involved here. As opposed to, it's Sunday, it's nine o'clock in the evening, it's a derailment, and probably maybe a dozen people. Those are two different incidents, okay? E is for emergency services needed and the sectors you wanna set up. As the incident commander, if you're the first arriving unit and there's no one else there, now you need to let your dispatcher know, can you start the police? Can you start the fire department? And we're going to need the, the T police as well. So now your dispatcher will get you other agencies. In addition, as the incident commander, you're getting a look at the lay of the land. What do I have for space? Because I'm going to have patients coming to me or coming to my location. So where am I going to put my treatment area? Where am I going to put my loading area? I want my loading area to be close to my treatment area because I want my ambulances to come to the loading area and pick up the patients. So what would be a good treatment area with loading access? And where do I want my staging area? The best staging area is about one to two minutes away from the active incident. I don't want people bringing their ambulances right to the incident and then disappearing. And now I can't, don't have any transportation. So as the incident commander, I might be saying, have the first, the next two arriving units report to me at Boylston and Mass at the command post and have the other um, units, any transporting units stage, right? So I'm staging, have them stage um, uh, at, uh, on Park Drive. So now all the other units are going to be going to Park Drive. They're not gonna get boxed in and I'm having two ambulance worth of personnel coming my way so I can start doing the rest of populating the rest of the positions. So that's me. Captain Selfidi and I arrived, or maybe Mr. Norman and I arrived, and I'm the incident commander. So now my partner, Mr. Norman, is going to be the triage officer. As the triage officer, he's going to be doing the assessment, okay? So he's going to be doing what we call sweep triage. During sweep triage, 
you quickly assess your patients one at a time and you label them, you tag them. Sometimes we use triage tags, sometimes we use colored ribbon, but you're going to be labeling them so the people coming behind you know how sick or how injured these patients are. So the triage officer comes to first patient, assesses them, tags them. Next patient assesses, tags. Next one, assess, tag. It moves very quickly. For the most part, there are no interventions being done other than simple airway maneuver, okay, tilt the head back, or maybe bleeding control, put a tourniquet on. No O2 will be given, no cervical collars will be put on, no bandaging of boo-boos will be done. This is strictly limited interventions because assessment and prioritizing your patients is the job of the triage officer, okay? The triage officer also needs to report or update the incident commander. That's who the triage officer is going to be talking to. So Mr. Norman, who is now auditorium triage, will be advising me that there are 22 patients located in the subway and he is in the process of triaging them and directing them up off the platform. His report will include the number of patients or as he knows it, and the types of injuries based on the mechanism. He may say, yeah, we got 22 patients, mostly orthopedic injuries. Great. If it's an active shooter incident, we have 12 patients, significant chest and head trauma. So we have an idea as to what to expect. So a lot of this triage officer, what we're going to do is going to be situation dependent. How you manage a train accident with 22 injuries, a bus overturned on the expressway with 22 injuries, the fire with 22 injuries is going to be different from the active shooter incident with 22 injuries. Active shooter incidents are a multiple casualty incident but they are a subset of an incident in and of itself. Because in an active shooter incident, you might actually be going into a situation that is not secured yet. And as a result, your strategy for triage and for treatment will be different, okay? So a lot of this is going to be situationally driven. So as the incident commander, I said scene size up. Well, if you take a look at your scene size up, scene safety, hazards, right? Hazards, all that stuff. What type of incident is it? That's all about safety. Number of patients, yep, I got the number of patients. Mechanism of injury, yep, I've got type of incident. And resources, what emergency services do I need? Where do I want them to go? How are they going to get there? 
and what's the location. So this really is the incident command version of the scene size up. And then when we go to patient contact, the triage officer is doing the general impression ABCs. And that's all they're doing, okay? So questions about incident commander and the triage officer. Okay, so our incident commander has done his thing. He's established communication. He's establishing his different positions. I've got my triage officer, Mr. Norman is over here and he's taking care of triage. And now more units are arriving. I've got other bodies. Now I wanna start establishing my treatment area. I'll probably use my first arriving paramedic to do that. I wanna establish a staging officer, someone who's going to wait at staging and keep track of people. And I'm going to establish my loading officer, the person who's gonna be in charge of, or my transportation officer, the person in charge of getting the patients from the treatment area into the ambulances. And that's my bare bones, minimalist staffing. If I can get more and I need more, I will. But that's the bare minimum you're going to need. You're going to need a triage officer, a treatment officer, a transportation officer, a staging officer, and then probably one more person to help out with operations or loading or whatever. So these are the key positions you need. So let's talk about triage. When you talk about triage, part of triage is identifying the patient priority. So during the initial sweep triage, that initial um, sweep triage contact, we're going to be tagging people with color-coded tags or tape or ribbon so that other people coming behind us can say, okay, where's all the really, really sick people? Well, they're the red people, all right? So we're gonna get the red tags out first. So tagging, is that initial contact color-coded so people can see it. The next part of this is removal or extraction. When I am done or when Mr. Norman is done triaging people, there are gonna be groups of individuals or an individual coming to help extract those people from the area and bring them someplace else. And that someplace else might be the treatment area. So we've got our triage going on, Mr. Norman's doing that. And now we're extracting our patients based on priority to the treatment area. Or if the treatment area has yet to be established or maybe we have to, it's a further away, we might have a casualty collection point. So that might be where we gather our wounded before we get them to the treatment area. Maybe when we arrived on scene, the T police and the fire department are telling us, it's not safe to go down there because of a smoke condition. If you want to establish triage, do it up here. So now maybe triage is going to happen at the casualty collection point as they bring patients up, and then we'll move the patients to the treatment area. 
So a casualty collection point is kind of a way station. It's a place where we bring patients before we get them to the treatment area because of personnel issues, or that's where we do triage because it's not safe to do triage over there. Questions about that? Once we get the patient to the treatment area, we're going to re-triage that patient. And this is what we call secondary triage. So now those patients are coming to the area and we're looking at it and say, okay, this is a patient who was deemed to be not that sick, but now as I look at them in the light of day, they're really, they're really, they're really injured. I'm gonna change that to a higher priority patient. Or, yep, this patient's a minor, minor injury. I'm gonna put them with a minor patient. Treatment, definitive treatment won't be done until we get the patient to the treatment area for a thorough assessment. And that treatment area should be safe, sheltered, and well lit in most circumstances. Now, if you take a look behind me, you will see that there's a piece of pavement, a street, and there's an ambulance, and you can see different colored tarps. That was the designated treatment area for this drill. And now we've color-coded our patients. The red patients are gonna go to the red tarp. The green patients will go to the green tarp and the yellow and the red. So we're gonna match the patient with the tarp. And we do this so that we know how many of each color patient we have. This way, all I have to do is take a look and see there are four patients on the red tarp. There are four priority one patients. When you're talking about how we manage this, remember that the standard of care, as we've discussed, is situational. So for instance, the standard of care for this train accident, we'd like to put collars on everybody before we move them, but we're not. We're gonna move them, get them off the train, get them off the platform, and then we'll apply collars. Well, that's a deviation from the standard of care as it normally is applied. But we know that standard of care changes based on the circumstance. Rule number one of triage, greatest good for the greatest number. We know that if we had one patient in respiratory arrest, my partner and I would treat that one patient. But if we're on that subway platform with 100 people, and there's someone in respiratory arrest, we are not treating that patient. We have a hundred other patients to worry about. So we're gonna worry about the greatest good for the greatest number. Rule number two is life before limb. Yes, we wanna immobilize patients before we have them move. Not gonna happen in an MCI. Yeah, listen, you've got a fractured arm. We'd like to splint that. Not right now, not until we get you to the treatment area. So 
we're going to worry about life threats first, much as we do for any trauma assessment. Okay. So questions about the basic principles of triage. So when we talk about triage, what does it look like when we have patients? How do we prioritize them? Red patients, high priority patients, priority one patients, are patients with life-threatening injuries with good survivability. If you have a life-threatening injury and you don't have a high likelihood of survivability, then you're not going to be considered a red patient. So if you have a respiratory issue, altered mental status, an airway issue, and there's a high likelihood that you're gonna survive, you will be designated a red patient. In addition, any injured rescuer, no matter how serious or how minor the injury, is a priority one patient, is a red patient. So you have a firefighter who uh, twisted his back. He's a red patient. He's going to be triaged and treated and transported sooner than other patients, than other non-acute patients, okay? If your patient is hysterical, they're crazy, they're sobbing, they're, they're hostile, whatever, that's a priority one patient because they are labor intensive. They are a labor suck on your staff. So now you're going to end up with them distracting your staff. They're going to make other patients hysterical. So we're going to get those crazy, hysterical, oh my God, let's get them off the scene. They're going to be priority one. Your green patients, or you're walking wounded. These are the patients that are hurt, but if they can walk, they're green. The patients in between, they're not acutely injured, but they can't walk. Those are going to be your yellow patients. Those are gonna be your patients who are not priority one, they're priority two, we're concerned about them, but we're not going to rush to get them off the scene. We're gonna to rush to get the priority one patients off. And then you've got your patients who are dead or almost dead. Those patients are what we call black tagged. And those patients are going to be removed from the active incident last. And if they are not quite dead yet, they are going to be put in the treatment area separate from everyone else, and they will be transported likely very close to last because we have limited resources and we wanna ship off the patients with good survivability before we ship off patients who are not likely to survive. This makes triage a very difficult process because you have to make 
some very difficult decisions. Notice what's not included here. There's no mention of age. So young children don't get preferential treatment. There's no mention of gender. You know, so it's not women and children first. It's strictly based on assessment. Okay. Questions about that? When we talk about triage, there are a couple of different triage techniques that, that are used. One technique is called SALT. Um, SALT. Captain. Yes. As, I don't know if you saw that, but there is the question about family members, about family being separated and so on and so forth. Yes, they will be separated. There's no time or methodology. We can't say, okay, listen, this patient is, is about to die you're doing okay, so we're going to leave both of you behind. If it's time to move you, we're gonna transport you. And no, we're not gonna transport this dead guy or almost dead guy with you just because you're related, okay? It really is a very sad to say utilitarian process, okay? It's about maximizing survivability. So one of the treatment techniques that is used is something called SALT. And SALT really much summarizes what triage is all about. The S in SALT stands for sort, duh. And when we talk about sort, we're talking about global sorting. You have 22 patients in front of you. The first thing you do if you're the triage officer is if you can hear my voice and you can walk, come to me. And that's going to pull all of your green patients out. And then you put all of your green patients in the treatment area or in a casualty collection point and you label them or tag them all green. They're your green patients. If you can hear me, you can't walk, but you can wave wave at me. People are waving. The people who are left who are not waving, those are the people you go to first. Those are your red patients to start. Okay, so now I've got my green patients over here. I've got a bunch of patients who can't walk, but they're waving. I know they're going to be yellow. And then I've got these patients who are not waving, I'm going to go to them first and start triaging them first. Once you've done your global sorting, you then do individual assessment. And that's when you go to the red patients first, the ones that aren't waving, do a quick assessment and tag them, quick assessment and tag them. And then you go to your yellow patient and, and tag them. The green patients are already tagged. So that's what A is for, A is assessment. L is for life-saving intervention. During a multiple casualty incident, where there aren't many interventions we're going to do. We might do, for instance, an airway maneuver, tilt someone's head back, roll them onto their side. We might put on a tourniquet. We might administer an antidote to, for instance, sarin, 
But other than that, there's not a whole lot of treatment we're going to do. No oxygen, no collar, no bandaging of boo-boos, no splinting. It's basically airway or dangerous bleeding, and that's it. So that's the L, life-saving interventions. T, <coughs> excuse me, is for transport. And this is when you start deciding who's going to be moved first, okay? Who's gonna be transported first? So questions about salt. Okay. So salt is one of the triage techniques that is used. Notice when we talked about assessment, S-A-L-T, we didn't talk about how you assess somebody. So when you're talking about triage techniques, the way you assess an individual is with what we call START triage. START triage stands for simple triage and rapid transport. So as you can see in this flow chart, it starts with walking wounded, just like salt does. Really, this is incorporated in salt. If you can hear my voice, come over here. Walk, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. Green tag, green tag, green tag, green tag. Stand right there. Now I'm going to individuals, and I start my start triage. So I go to my first patient. Are they breathing? No. Okay, I'm going to position their airway. Are they breathing now? Yes. Red tag, I'm moving on, okay? Because they're unconscious, they didn't wave at me, and they're not breathing unless their airway is positioned. Red tag, I don't need to know anything else. Patient number two, are they breathing? No. I reposition their airway, are they breathing now? No, dead. They might still have a pulse, doesn't matter, they're dead move on. Bachelor number three, are they breathing? Yes, finally, someone's breathing. Now the question is, how fast? Are they breathing greater than 30? Yes, red tag, because if you're breathing greater than 30, something's going on, red tag. Start is simple triage and rapid transport. Patient number four, are they breathing? Yes, two in a row, excellent. How fast? Less than 30, good. Now I go to my next step. What's their perfusion? Do they have a radial pulse? No, red tag. I know they're alive because they're breathing, but they don't have a radial pulse, red tag, or their capillary refill is delayed, red tag, okay? Next patient, are they breathing? Yes. How fast? Under 30, excellent. Do they have a radial pulse? Yes. The next step is, can they follow simple commands? Hey, are you okay? Squeeze my fingers, open your eyes. If they cannot follow simple commands, Red tag, 
if they can follow simple commands, yellow tag. And this is why we said during that global sorting during SALT, if you can hear my voice and you can't walk, but you can wave, wave. So we know they're breathing, they have a pulse, and they can follow commands. They're going to be yellow. It's the other people that are left over that are either going to be red or black. So that's start, simple triage and rapid transport, okay? Reposition their airway, you either tilt their head back or roll them on their side, okay? Needless to say, there are going to be events where not only are there adults that are injured, but children. And we recognize that children are not just small adults. So there is a special um, section of start that's called, cutely, jump start. And jump start is for children under the age of eight. So you have a child, and basically it's the same algorithm but we take into consideration that children have different respiratory issues or needs than adults do. So if I have a child under the age of eight, or I should say appears to be under the age of eight, we're not gonna card them, okay? So now what happens is, are they breathing? No. So now we're going to open their airway. Are they breathing now? Yes, they're red. Are they breathing? No. Open their airway. Are they breathing now? No. Okay, do they have a pulse? No, dead. Are they breathing? No. Open their airway. Are they breathing now? No. Do they have a pulse? Yes. Let me see if I can jump start their breathing. That's where the term comes from. I'm going to deliver five rescue breaths. One, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000, four, 1,000, one, 1,000. We're gonna give them five breaths. Do they start breathing now? No, dead. Do they start breathing after the five breaths? Yes red okay so that's the airway part of it the breathing part of it are they breathing yes excellent how fast for children 30 is the midpoint of the range for children under the age of eight are they breathing between 15 and 30 if they're not, if their breathing is less than 15 or greater, I mean 15 or 45, if they're breathing less than 15 or greater than 45, they are a red. Okay? Because we know bradypnea in a child leads to bradycardia. So that's the other change. So for children under the age of eight, 
If they're not breathing after an airway repositioning, we give them the benefit of five breaths to try to jumpstart them. If it doesn't work, then they're dead. When we assess their respiratory rate, we use 15 to 45 as okay, less than 15, greater than 45, not okay, they're red. And then from there, we go back to the whole, their heart, their respiratory rate is between 15 and 45. Do they have a palpable pulse? Yes, they do. Okay, are they, do they follow simple commands? And so now we do the same, the same um, algorithm. Questions about jumpstart. Okay. So needless to say, the age is, is, is up to eight years of age. So after the thrill, after this MCI, what do we do? There's going to be documentation to be done. When you've transported patients, you still have to track them. You have your triage tags on them. Those are numbered. So you're going to try to match the number with the patient so you can get some information. You're going to do patient care reports. Maybe the transporting ambulances are writing down patient care reports. If not, you're going to generate a patient care report after the fact. In addition, the folks that populated the key positions, incident commander, triage officer, treatment officer, staging officer, transportation loading officer, safety, anyone who populated a non-transport position is going to generate an after action report. They're gonna generate their perception or their perspective of how things went. What went well, what didn't go well, what could have gone better, okay? There's going to be a debriefing. The debriefing can occur anywhere from a few days to a few weeks after the event. This is a review from an operational standpoint. It's a critique, how did we do? What would we do different? What are the lessons we learned? This debriefing is different than a critical incident stress management debriefing. This should be done within 72 hours of the event. This involves bringing people in and talking about their experience. Not a critique, but how do they feel about what happened? What did you notice? How do you feel now? How have you been sleeping? So this is where we try to take care of each other and ourselves, okay? And as with anything, practice, practice, practice. After a large scale event, you might identify some things that your, your people need to work on or your agency needs to work on. And the way you do that is you create drills and you simulate stuff and you drill and you drill. That's the only way to identify issues and resolve them. 
So I will tell you from our experience with the Boston Marathon bombing, we transported pretty much about 200 patients. All the patients that we transported, that we triage survived. The only three patients that died were patients that were dead on scene. But of the patients that we treated and we transported, we used triage tags and the triage tags had numbers and the loading officer held on to a corner of the triage tag so we knew which patients went to what hospital. And then after the fact, we sent teams to the hospital during the next week or two, and we would ask who arrived with one of these tags. And we would match the number with the medical record and generate documentation for them. And this becomes important, not because we necessarily wanted to bill them for the ride, but because we have to have a record so that if we bill insurance companies or FEMA, we can say we transported 180 people and these were their injuries. And we need some money to offset the cost of material. Debriefings, we did debriefings. We started our after action reports and debriefings in the first couple of days immediately following the event. And we had formal agency debriefings for critiquing um, at three weeks and then again at five weeks. So we actually had several critiquing debriefings. Before the incident de-escalated, we had created a critical incident stress presence in this building with peer support and clinicians so that that was already in place before the event was even over. And there are people who are in our ambulance service, who are in our service, who still get that support, still see those clinicians as a result of their experience at the marathon. Okay. So questions about MCIs. Okay. Questions about anything else? No. Okay. Give me a minute so I can come out of this. All right. So any questions about hazmat, multiple casualty incidents, that sort of stuff? No, we're pretty good regarding that. Okay. Questions about our practical situation, rebooting. Okay. And we will certainly, there'll be an email going out to you guys. There'll also be more discussion about it when we see each other again on Thursday. Thursday, we're going to have quiz 11. And we will be wrapping up the didactic material um, with a discussion of weapons of mass destruction and terrorism so that we can kind of finish that whole special operations module out. Okay. Yes, I see that, Mr. Miller. We'll talk about the uh, practical reboot 
um, in a moment, okay? If you can hang in for us. Any other questions? All right, guys. Well, then, we will speak to you on, uh, on Thursday, quiz 11, obstetrics, pediatrics, geriatrics. Um, and we will reconvene and finish up the didactic material, and we will strategize and go into more depth about Saturday's festivities. Okay? All right, everyone, be safe. Mr. Miller, why don't you hang